Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I want what I can't have Still holding on to hope Drowning in my tears This love's a sinking boat Oh, oh, this love's a sinking boat Oh, oh, once my hands have reached the shore You'll pull me back in And I shouldn't beg for more But I So that's one of the questions we'll be asking today. Is there a wave right now? Um, But before we even get into that, I just want to say that preparing for today's show, I kept thinking of a kind of medium famous internet meme. It features a a strange looking dog with a derby who's sitting at a table with a coffee mug on it. And all around the dog, the room that he's in is engulfed in flames, like engulfed in flames. And he famously is saying, this is fine. And I feel like that's kind of we're kind of the the dog right now as a nation, as a society, maybe as a as a planet. Uh, here in, in the U.S., we have new variants that uh, are immune evasive. We have the actual collapse uh, of one of our major treatments for COVID, the monoclonal antibodies, which are losing their EUAs. Evusheld, which was uh, an aspect of that, which was used to treat people who are immunocompromised, is also just going to kind of run out the clock. It's not really working uh, anymore. Uh, We have a triple-demic because of RSV and because of the flu and COVID. We have overflowing ERs, uh, ICUs and PICUs that uh, have no beds available. I could go on and on. (laughs) And I feel like we're the dog. We're going, this is fine. You know, we can handle this. We got got this. So uh, we have some terrific guests here uh, to shed some light on all that and what uh, isn't being done and what could be done. Uh, We're going to start out with uh, a gentleman who's been on our show before. Greg Gonsalves is Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Microbial Diseases at Yale School of Public Health and the Public Health Correspondent for The Nation, among other relevant titles. Uh, Welcome back to our show, Greg. Thanks, Colin. Nice to be here. So uh, let's uh, address Megan Trainer's concern right away. I mean, as we headed into Thanksgiving, there were people saying, wow, we've got a new variant on the scene, but we're not really seeing the wave. We're not really seeing signs of the wave in terms of hospitalization, uh, sewage monitoring and stuff like that. I feel like since Thanksgiving, that's changed a little bit. And Do you feel like it's like we're having another COVID wave? Well, first, we have to start with a little bit of context, right? We've had between, I don't know, 200 and 300, let's say 250 to 350 um, COVID deaths per day in the U.S. for months and months and months. So you're asking if there's a wave, but we're we're, we're up for our, our armpits in water already, right? Yeah. Um, you know, just think every 10 days, that's a 9-11 worth of deaths in the United States. So we've had sort of high viral spread across the U.S. Um, for months and months and months, really um, 
um, bringing down many of our elderly and immunocompromised um, uh, friends, relatives, and colleagues a- across the country. Right. So the idea that you know, you know, we were out of the woods and you know we were just waiting for the next wave to to appear um, probably is the wrong starting point. But you know what we're seeing right now is that um, we're in a triple demic, as you said. We have respiratory syncytial virus. Um, even though it appears to be slowing a little bit, but we've seen COVID cases rising since Thanksgiving, and um, the flu is 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 basically at a, at a, uh, a level that we haven't seen in over ten years, um, and um, and so we are hitting a wall in terms of respiratory infections, and we're seeing it in the places that um, um, you know we don't think about very much: pediatric infections, uh, uh, intensive care units. In many places around the country, they are just full up. Right? There's no place to put sick kids. Um, who need who need care for 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 illnesses, including the respiratory infections that are here. So we're in the midst of a triple demic um, on the background of a of an unusually high level of COVID nineteen compared to our uh, uh, G seven peers around the world. And it seems, I mean, I, we're we're kind of talking about stuff that's sitting right in front of us, but it's worth talking about it anyway. It, it's it's a little surprising, right, that we would be as flat-footed as it feels as though we are right now. This whole thing got started in early 2020. Um, we've had quite a bit of time to uh, adjust to the new realities. Uh, we've got vaccines available, uh, although I think by any measure we're a very under-vaccinated country. Uh, we have other forms of mitigation and treatment. I don't know. When you try to explain to yourself why we're in as bad a situation as we're in right now. I mean, it's clearly not entirely the virus's fault. We're playing some kind of role in this. Yeah, well, I mean, then I think you have to start looking back into to American history, public health and clinical medicine. We've never really had a strong commitment to public health in the United States. And basically, starting at the beginning of the 20th century, said we could sort of treat our way out of um, any sort of um, uh, public health catastrophe, um, one patient at a time. And so where that left us is before the pandemic, we were in the 40s in terms of life expectancy rankings across the globe. Um, and even right before the pandemic, there were predictions that we would head towards 64th in the, in the world in terms of global life expectancy rankings. And so we have a lot of tolerance for suffering and death in the United States, um, as long as it doesn't uh, end up on our own doorsteps. So that's that's sort of the um, way to think about framing this. We, we're already sort of sicker than um, many of our developing uh, developed nations peers and even some poorer countries around the world. And it's just gotten worse over the, the course of the pandemic. And it is, it's sort of, um, uh, what it's sort of the Mad Magazine version of public health in America, what me worry. Um, you know, as long as it's not hitting home for you, um, we seem to, to to accept a lot of death and suffering and disability uh, in this uh, this this country. Yeah, Greg, and I can't help but think when you say what you just said, and it's something that I've thought about and, and written about already. I can't help but think back to the 1980s and AIDS and, and the inaction of the Reagan administration on it, and it it seemed clearly due to the fact that this was. Uh, a virus that was going after gay men, injectable drug users, and people with hemophilia. And that there was sort of a sense of, okay, well, you know, 
The sense that it was almost allowable somehow, or, or it's not something we really have to do anything big about because it's just sort of this group of people. And I feel like we're tracking a little bit in that direction now. It's you know, it's people with immunodeficiencies, people with obesity, people uh, of color who just have worse outcomes, people from underserved uh, uh, populations maybe can't get their hands on Paxlovid when they need it. I feel like once again we've sort of ghettoized a group of people who are at high risk. Maybe you could react to that. Well, you know, Larry Kramer, my old comrade from ACT UP, used to say that, you know, the reason they didn't, President Reagan didn't mention the word uh, HIV in his speech until seven years into his two-year two-year term as president, because we were disposable people. We were, we were um, people in, inject drugs, we were, we, were, we were gay men, we were sex workers, um, et cetera. We were, we were Haitians or people of color. You know, I, I think it's much more... Um, generalized now, the sort of generalized sort of um, disdain for public health and people's health and well-being is, is far far more um, generalized now. And I don't think it's just sort of the immunocompromised and the elderly. I think there's a whole bunch of people, frankly, that um, have what they need to, to protect themselves and their families. Um, they know where to get rapid tests. They know where to get N95 masks. They have quick access to Paxlovid if they need it, even if they're not exactly um eligible for it under 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 the, the federal guidelines. And so we basically have, have said there's a whole set of people in America who are disposable now. Um, and it and it crisscrosses race um, and sexuality and gender. Um, and if there's anything that ties together, it, it, it's it's about um, class and, and who has the resources in America to, to keep themselves safe uh, and to get what they need if they do get sick. And that's where we are in terms of the pandemic. We, we basically let a whole chunk of the nation off to to drift. And you might say, oh, you know, in the case of AIDS, it was maybe a small demographic proportion of the American populace. Here we're talking about millions and millions of people who were basically riding off, letting them die. You know, to that point, too, um, and it's almost like there's another virus, and it's the virus that you get infected with that kind of indifference that you're describing right now. And and I think you saw the same tweet I did from uh, Ashish Jha, uh, who was a, a big leader in two very prestigious uh, schools of public health prior to becoming the, the kind of COVID czar for the White House. Uh, and so he had this little mini thread on November 23rd, and it concluded, if you are up to date on your vaccines... And if you get treated if infected, your chances of surviving COVID is close to 100%. Those are the facts. The rest is noise. And Greg, it seemed to me like he was putting everybody that you just talked about and that I just talked about into the category of noise. And we haven't even mentioned people with long COVID yet or some of the people with kind of medium COVID, some organ complications that may or may not be due to COVID infections. But all these other people, I just thought, boy, there was a kind of pitiless quality to that coming from a guy who I really regarded as a highly respect-worthy thought leader. So, you know, when you get into government positions, um, sometimes you, you you end up saying what people want to hear. And, you know, Dr. Jar has become the cheerleader in chief. Of course, vaccines and treatment alone are not going to stop this pandemic. You know, there was a big paper in Nature magazine in, in November, which said, you know, actually, we need a much more comprehensive response to the pandemic if we're going to get our arms around it. Um, and, you know, the numbers don't lie. You know, Dr. John may say, if you're treated and you get vaccines, you're going to be fine. But the cases that we have 10% or less people who've had the bivalent boosters, we already still know that getting getting Paxlovid or, or, or other kinds of care for, for severe or moderate COVID infections is difficult for many, many people. And so um, it, there was a cruel sort of um, um, nonchalance about that comment that that the 
COVID czar in the White House made. And, and it really, it, 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 it leads you to, to another um, uh, fact that we have higher excess deaths and per capita COVID mortality than most of the other G7 nations, right? So, so we're not on, on you know, we're not, uh, we, we haven't reached mission accomplished. We're not doing well for our people when we're at the bottom uh, of the heap in terms of keeping people alive and keeping them well. And we haven't even talked about long COVID. So there's a little bit of cheerleading from the White House. And there's a there's a sense that um, good public health has is, is fallen by the wayside in the context of this pandemic by an administration that said we'd lead with science. And it's all about political expediency now um, and, and, and sort of spinning the pandemic away in, in sort of these sound bites that, that make it sound like it's something in, in, the, in the distance receding quickly away from our view. So that, that piece you talked about from Nature, which I think had 365 or 385 uh, um, people from the world of biosciences and public health involved in it. The other thing they talked about, and we're going to be talking a lot about it later in the show, but they, they talked about masks, which I think increasingly for political leaders and really, once again, for a certain number of thought leaders in, in the world, world of medical science, it's like this thing you're not supposed to talk about anymore, <laughs> which I, I also don't entirely understand, but I'd love to hear your thinking about it. Well, one is, you know, it's not rocket science. Just the mechanics of, of biotransmission give you a, a sense that it would be important to put a mask on in the context of a respiratory uh, virus, and particularly actually in the, in the spread of RSV and flu and COVID over the past um, several months. You know, I think Dr. Walensky at the CDC said, you know, probably we do need to start thinking about masking again in public places, uh, in public transportation. Um, and, and I think she said this week, we don't have to wait until the CDC recommends it. Well, the CDC should recommend it, right? Um, <laughs> There's something kind of hilarious know. about that, right? Well, don't don't well, wait but, for but, me but, to tell you to do it. <laughs> but to be fair, there's been a huge sort of um, 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 political war fought about uh, masks in this country that I don't think, I think some of it's about our weariness about the pandemic and um, masks as a symbol of, 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 of this virus that's been with us now for three years. Um, but part of it's politically generated and um, was, has been used by the, the conservative right largely to, to push against public health more generally. The point is, is that um, masks are one part of a, a comprehensive response. We don't just need masks, vaccines, and um Paxlovid, we need to deal with ventilation, we need to deal with paid sick leave. A, we have to think of comprehensively a whole of government response, as the Nature paper said, uh, of and a whole of society response to dealing with the pandemic. But yeah, masks are going to keep you um, uh, safer than not wearing a mask in a, in a context of high viral transmission for three circulating respiratory viruses. Um, you know, you, you may not want to do it. We may talk whether we need mandates or don't need mandates, but you know, the evidence is pretty clear. There was a paper in New England Journal of medicine a few uh, a few weeks ago in the beginning of November, I think that talked about how school districts in Boston that lifted their mask mandates had uh, additional um, COVID infections compared to school school districts that didn't do it. So it you know there's a paper by um, Mashrik Mubarak and others here at Yale about a which was a randomized controlled study of, of mask wearing in Bangladesh. It said again you know. Uh, these practices are, are definitely effective. And we see mask wearing other, in other places around the world, even before COVID, uh, during, during uh, respiratory virus season, uh, particularly in East Asia. And so, you know, it's become this cold cultural taboo um, that, you know, I think was sort of hoisted on us by sort of the, the conservative um, movement in America, but really the, the White House and, and the rest of, of the sort of um, middle of the road um, centrists in this country basically have sort of gone for hook, line, and sinker um, and said, 
you know, you do you. If you wear a mask, fine. Don't don't worry about it. You know, you, everything's going to be okay. We're back to the sort of if you're vaxxed, you can be relaxed. If you can't do that, you can get paxed, right? You can get paxlovid. I love that we're rapping about it now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel as though the notion, I mean, you talked about elsewhere in the world prior to COVID. I was in, I just happened to be in Japan in 2009 when there was a swine flu thing was going on. And yeah, you got on public transit and pretty much everybody was was maxed and people sort of seemed to get that. Uh, but um, but I feel like, you know, you're the epidemiologist, so you can help me out with this. But my recollection is that somewhere between about 1999 and 2001, syphilis was almost eradicated. Uh, we um, we had syphilis on the ropes and people stopped using condoms. But condom use went down and syphilis is back back with us. And, and you know, it seems like these relatively simple but maybe sort of nuisancey kinds of measures that we can do to have significant public health gains. Back to your original uh, uh, comment, we're, we're willing to live with death and disease and suffering rather than do fairly easy things. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. Um, everybody's sort of framed public health as sort of opposed to, to, to the American values of liberty and freedom over the past two years. Um, but, you know, as um, Justice Harlan said in a famous case in 1905 about mass mandates, um, you know, our, our liberty is contingent on what happens in, in the context of how its effect on other people. And so um, we've sort of begun to sort of live by this mantra of give me liberty and give me death in the United States, whether it's, you know, it's COVID or other um, diseases that we can potentially prevent with simple measures, whether it's condoms or, or, or masks, et cetera. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Uh, Greg Gonzalez uh, has been kind enough to give us some of his time. Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Microbial Diseases at Yale School of Public Health and the Public Health Correspondent for The Nation. Uh, read his stuff there. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with Eric Topol. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Ah, 
I do want to point out they're saying Funky Pox. This is Tower of Power did not know that Monkey Pox was coming. Uh, but we do have a doctor in the house. Uh, he is one of the thought leaders. For me, one of the really elite thought leaders uh, about this whole question. Uh, his Twitter feed is indispensable. Uh, his Substack uh, newsletter, Ground Truths, is also indispensable. Eric Topol uh, is physician and scientist and founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Welcome to our show, sir. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. So one of the things that you've been writing about and monitoring about are some of the variants. I think there's like 500 subvariants out there <laughs> in the world right now. But uh, as Peter Hotez says, uh, we've got the, these Scrabble variants, BQ1, BQ11, XBB, maybe also BN1. I don't know. Can you help us make a little bit of simple sense uh, out of that whole stew? Sure. Well, the ones that we're dealing with right now, particularly it's called bq 1.1. I wish they had better names, of course, uh, but it's um, the most um, evasive of our immune response since the beginning of the pandemic. So that's why uh, our antibodies don't work anymore. Every shell doesn't work anymore. And that's in part why we're seeing a new wave, uh, not just here in the U.S., but throughout Europe uh, as well. It's much indexed to this particular variant. And concurrently, our immunity is waning because we're not keeping up with vaccines and we're not using the mitigation that we used earlier in the pandemic. So this is all part of the Omicron family. You know, a year ago, uh, it basically got off um, throughout the world and then it just keeps evolving. The virus picks up more and more mutations. And we're seeing the extremes of the effects of those added mutations with the two worst ones, BQ1.1 and XBB, XBB uh, became dominant in Singapore. It's uh, particularly uh, prominent in many countries in Asia. But we have about 6% of it here in the U.S., and it's going to eventually be the one that we'll have to reckon with. There was initially maybe some thought that it wasn't going to hit us as hard. The, some of the early signs indicated uh, that we, we might not have a, a wave. And there was some thought, and I think you might have been one of the people willing to entertain this possibility, that we did have some sort of ramshackle immunity wall comprised or composed of uh, people who were vaccinated or maybe bivalent boosted and very small numbers of us with that and prior infections combined with some vaccination that, that maybe we we were a little bit more collectively immune than we had been in the past. My sense is our confidence about that is waning a bit. Yes, that's a really good point you're making, because several weeks ago, uh, the perception I had was things were looking pretty good. Uh, and that was judged because in France, uh, which is the country that became the leading edge of BQ 1.1, um, that they didn't sustain a wave, that they, they basically... The, the variant was uh, tailing off. Uh, and the caveat there was that France has 50% higher booster rate than in the U.S. Uh, and has done much better among seniors. Uh, so that was then. And then what happened was we didn't know until a little bit later that part of that was a fake out. Because in France, the labs that were running um, the cases uh, as well as the sequencing basically went on strike, mm -hmm. and we didn't know that. And so we got basically thought that BQ1.1 went asleep, and in, in fact, it just came roaring back as soon as the lab strike was over. Uh, so that, in combination with the fact that our booster rate is suboptimal, particularly suboptimal, uh, now we're seeing the ill effects. It may not be that bad in terms of a wave, 
still because, as you mentioned, we have this immunity wall that's been built from the massive number of infections and vaccinations and boosters and combinations thereof. But right now, it doesn't look good. No, and it also doesn't look good specifically because such an incredibly low percentage of Americans have gotten the bivalent booster, which is, I assume, you know, one of our our best bets and in terms of vaccination, absolutely our best bet. But I think you're also alluding to the fact that just in terms of overall boostedness, in other words, a shot other than the primary sequence, America's like way, way. I last time I looked, it was like 65 or 70th in the world in terms of availing itself of anything other than the primary sequence of, of, of vaccinations, either one or two. And that's kind of astonishing considering, considering that we developed and made a lot of these vaccines. So what's going on there? This is the shocker uh, of for me of the three years of the pandemic that we are so malperformed that exactly as you say, we're ranked below 60 or 70th in the world for primary vaccinations and for boosters. And, and of course, that's the irony of us having made in the vaccines and validated them in record speed. So this is just, unfortunately, an outgrowth of profound amount of misinformation, disinformation. Um, you know, just today, the, the most... Um, extraordinary uh, comprehensive review of vaccines by the Cochrane Library was published. And, you know, the body of evidence for vaccines and for boosters is the most extensive we've had in medical history for any intervention, whether it be a drug, device, vaccine, I mean, you name it. So it's just being uh, crowded out by bad information by people that have taken on uh, science and vaccines to the detriment of American public, uh, and that's led to not just so massive amount of deaths, you know, almost 1.1 million or more, but the long COVID, the morbidity, hospitalizations, all these things we suffered just because of not uh, being uh, uh, receptive to the evidence and the science. And it it seems like one of the things that we need a lot more of, and I know I'm talking to a research guy, is a lot more research and a lot more development. We really, although we'll talk about Paxlovid in a second. Paxlovid's great. But it's pretty clear that we don't have the tools that we need. Uh, as we've both been alluding to, monoclonal antibodies are pretty much off the table. The EUAs have been pulled, I think, on all of them at that point. You mentioned Evusheld, which is for uh, especially good for autoimmune uh, sufferers. Uh, we're increasingly looking at a situation where we're probably going to need new generations of vaccines uh, and, and new generations of treatments. And and meanwhile, we're also reading, I was just thunderstruck reading the page one piece in the New York Times a few weeks ago about the development of nasal vaccines, which has slowed down partly because there's this whole idea we're not in a crisis anymore, so we don't need to be at warp speed, we don't need to do that stuff. But even more amazingly, Dr. Iwasaki, who's been on this show, was saying that they need to develop a nasal vaccine. They need to be able to work with the existing mRNA vaccines, uh, the Pfizer and the Moderna, and they're not allowed to get them for reasons research purposes to, right. to, to develop. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, maybe you could say a little bit more about sort of what we need to be doing in terms of research and development as opposed to what we are. Crazy is the right word, really. Um, we have this bizarre complacency that everything's going to be fine. And, you know, big bet on vaccines, which haven't been actualized in terms of uh, their durability, their protection from infections and the uptake. So uh, 
while we're still seeing the virus evolve within the Omicron family, there is a liability. It's going to jump to a whole new family, whether that's called Pi or Sigma or whatever, where it's very different than what we've been dealing with in the past year. So that's basically looming uh, in the months and potentially years ahead. Meanwhile, we have uh, no leadership here with respect to pushing uh, forward with a nasal vaccine, uh, which is the answer to limiting infection, uh, limiting spread. Uh, and already, of course, there's a couple out there uh, in other countries. And interestingly, the work by Akiko Iwasaki uh, and many others in the U.S. is getting much more interest out licensing those intellectual properties to other countries like India and, and Mexico and others. So we just are asleep here uh, with uh, the wrong impression that uh, we're done uh, when, in fact, we're going to need something more. We we have to have things that are going to help uh, beyond uh, the, the Paxlovid um as you mentioned, is basically all we have right now that can deal with the variants. We don't have any antibodies anymore. Uh, and uh, except for mass, uh, our vaccines and boosters are the limited durability and potency for um, uh, uh, blunting infections. So our armamentarium is weak and we're facing more trouble uh, in the times ahead. Can we just talk about those antibodies for a second, too? Uh, here's my understanding, and you can correct me, but my understanding is one of the problems that ultimately spelled the demise of monoclonals. Obviously, you've got a rapidly mutating set of variants, and so the monoclonals, you, you develop a whack-a-mole tool, and by the time you get it to market, you scale it up, you get it to market, and the mole isn't so whackable anymore. It's changed into a different kind of mole. And, and so that the companies at a certain point, I, I think, are saying, well, it just doesn't really make any sense for us to do that. But that makes me wonder whether we need to rethink uh, antibodies and, and whether we need to be developing a more universal kind of antibody that can be given to people with a number of different expressions of, of different variants. Uh, maybe you could say a little bit. I mean, is there is there hope of something coming along that's better than what we just lost? Yeah, absolutely. So that's an exciting area where there's been a lot of research in academic labs of these so-called broad neutralizing antibodies that are variant proof, that uh, are potent against every, not only the the variants that we've seen, and you've mentioned there's hundreds, if not thousands of them, uh, most of which haven't gotten to, you know, getting a, a Greek letter name or even, you know, a, a particular interest because of the lack of functionality. But yes, we, we have some 40 to 50 of these BNABs and they also are templates for making uh, vaccines that are variant proof, but they haven't gotten enough attention. They haven't gotten um, picked up by the companies that are making monoclonals, or if they are, they're sluggish. They're not moving fast enough. And so we keep falling behind, even though, it, you know, so many academic labs have, have uh, discovered different sites where the antibodies bind that are exceptional, uh, so potent that we would basically take out this virus. Now, what's interesting, uh, you know, just uh, recently on Thanksgiving Day, it was published uh, a universal flu vaccine that mm -hmm. was effective against every known uh, strain of A and B influenza. And that is a virus that's much more challenging to develop broad neutralizing antibodies and, and a vaccine than coronavirus. Um, so there's 
really uh, the building blocks for doing this. But again, we're just not pursuing it with the aggressive stance that we should. I want to go back to the nasal vaccines for a second uh, and make sure that I and my listeners understand uh, what's going on there. And here's how I understand it. It's close to my heart because my son, uh, who's in his early 30s, is immunosuppressed. Um, So, you know, I've had five shots now, including the bivalent. Uh, I'm certainly eligible for Paxlovid should I get sick. I don't worry a tremendous amount, although I wear a mask everywhere. And part of that is because of my son, because one of the unusual things about SARS-CoV-2 is that uh, you can be uh, asymptomatic but contagious. Uh, So I could walk in there and not pick it up on a rapid test beforehand and not know it, uh, that I I was a carrier and I could make him sick and he doesn't really have an ability to to, to mount a response or to benefit from vaccines. That's um, 3% of the population, I think, is like that. But there's another, you know, probably 6% of the population that are people like me, people who love somebody who's in that situation. I'm assuming that because the virus can hide in my upper airways, uh, even if I'm vaccinated, and maybe make me contagious, even though I'm vaccinated, that that's one of the values of a nasally administered vaccine, that it would begin to address the kind of waiting room that SARS-CoV-2 can sit in sometimes in our upper airways. I really like that metaphor about the waiting room, but absolutely right. We know, you know, from the very early days of the pandemic, we knew there was a lot of asymptomatic carrier status of the virus. And up until Omicron, you know, the vaccines and boosters through Delta, you know, work pretty well to deal with the waiting room problem. But uh, ever since a year ago, that basically that whole strategy of using shots no longer works very well. I mean, it has a minimal effect for several weeks and then that's basically quickly tails off. So the only way we know to get this done uh, and basically um, squash the chance of the virus uh, establishing residence in our upper airway, particularly our nasal mucosa, is with a nasal vaccine. There's no other way we have to do that. And um, it's there are many programs, several that are near um, their uh, final readout stage of trials, uh, a few that are already complete. And the data so far, you know, are really encouraging. I mean, there's been a few failures, of course, but a missed tens of different nasal vaccine candidates, uh, we're going to have a few that are highly effective. Unfortunately, um, they're not going to be so far uh, the ones that are being developed in the U.S. because we're just not going after it. So let's talk about some good news. Paxlovid works. It still works. um, And it even maybe works in some ways we hadn't entirely understood at the beginning. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, you're right on there. Um, It works better than the randomized trial. (laughs) So the randomized trial usually is the best kind of pristine data set. And then it kind of, after you get into the real world, it doesn't work as well. Here we have just the opposite, because you'll recall that the the big trial that led to its approval, emergency approval, was called EPIC. It was high-risk people, and they almost all of them were vaccinated, uh, unvaccinated. So what we have now is a really big uh, publication, uh, multiple now, where it works just as well in vaccinated, just as well as in immunocompromised people who've had prior COVID across the board, all ages, in fact. And there's a bonus factor, which we didn't anticipate, but it is really great news, is that at least a 26% reduction of long COVID, that is by, by stopping the replication of the virus early, that helps to reduce the toll of the chronic long COVID um, 
issues. So this is great. We're not using it enough. We also can't rely on it long-term because eventually we've already seen mutations in the uh, MPRO, the main protease that this uh, pill blocks or this combo pill blocks. So we, we need backups. We need combinations. And again, we're just not aggressively pursuing that. But right now, Paxlovid is really important. And uh, the concern about rebound, as we recently put out in a preprint, is really unfounded. The rates are low, uh, and there's no reason to not to withhold Paxlovid just because you think a person may develop rebound symptoms, as was originally uh, a source of concern. Right. I mean, I think it's becoming clear that this might be, you know, for example, a kind of a 14-day disease, and, and Paxlovid might knock it down somewhere in the middle of that. Uh, but it, it didn't cause the tail end of it. It just sort of suppressed the symptoms for a while, and then it kind of bubbles back up, if I have that right. You do. Uh, you process this stuff really well. I'm impressed. So... um <sighs> I'd be remiss if I didn't say that we're not a Scandinavian social democracy. So it's not guaranteed that everybody who needs Paxlovid and is eligible for it can get it, right? That's another problem that we have here. We have a really terrific drug. I don't think it's clear that people in underserved communities, uh, for example, can always get it. Yes. And now uh, it's no longer going to be available for free. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people uninsured are going to not get it just because they can't afford it. Uh, it, it's it's a very expensive drug, uh, not not necessarily the cost of the drug uh, to make, but cost of goods, but the way the, um, the company charges for it. So uh, we've got some problems here because not only have we had underuse, but now we have a whole new reason, which is um, it's not going to be no longer supplied for free by the government. So I think we have time for one more question. I'm going to ask you one that... Um maybe somewhat uncomfortable since you yourself are a physician. But the reality is somewhere today in America, Eric, a doctor is going to write a ZPAC prescription for a patient who he knows has COVID. And it's probably somewhere in America today, a doctor is going to give a phase one COVID patient steroids, which is too early to use steroids and might actually be harmful. Uh, and, and we know that <laughs> I actually know doctors who are using hy- on themselves hydroxychloroquine uh, mm. er- early in this cycle. And is this another part of the problem that somehow or other, I mean, we have great doctors in this country and you're one of them, but we also seem to have doctors who will say to their patients who are requesting Paxlovid, oh, I don't really do that. I don't do that. <laughs> No. I mean, are we? Yeah. do we need more continuing education or something? What's going on there? You know, you're bringing up a really uh, big issue. Uh, it's disheartening because um, the people who are not getting Paxlovid uh, are people who are uh, of advanced age. And typically, it's the physician doesn't want to deal with the concerns about drug interactions. Uh, there are many interactions. However, it's a five-day course, and almost invariably, you can stop the statin or other medications for that brief period of time. So we have a problem with education, uh, with the fact that physicians are overwhelmed, busy, and the, the, rather than you know get involved in uh, you know checking through the medications at potential interactions, they're putting some of our folks, our elder folks, at risk unnecessarily. So this is just one example of just not keeping up with the data. It's an ever-flowing uh, cascade of, of new data, uh, and unfortunately, um, we've really missed it here. Uh, if you look at 
the reasons why a lot of patients are not getting appropriate treatment, whether that's treatment that's got validation like Paxlovid or whether they're getting things that have never been validated like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. We've got lots of problems. All right. Uh, I hate to stop on that note, uh, <laughs> but but we probably should uh, let you go. Dr. Eric Topol is a physician and scientist. He writes the Ground Truth uh, Substack newsletter, which you should absolutely be subscribing to. And he's the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Definitely also follow him at Twitter. It's just at his name. Thanks for doing this, sir. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. All right. We'll be back with one more segment. We're going to talk to one of the journalists who's doing terrific work covering this for The Atlantic. I used to wear black and now I'm blue. I used to tell lies and now I tell the truth. I'm not successful, no, but I don't mind. Success is before your time. I drink the drug of hope with my red all right, let me say some quick thank yous here, especially to Kat Pastor, our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is the producer of this episode. I want to also say that uh, tomorrow's show, if you're listening to us on Wednesday, <laughs> is um, one we've been working on for a long time. It's about the sort of question in the arts and the humanities, whether everything has already been done and everything that comes after is just a restatement or a collage of other existing things or whether there can be true originality. So uh, tune in for that. Uh, meanwhile, we're very excited to have uh, as our final guest on this show, um, a journalist who's been doing terrific work uh, on this whole topic. Uh, Catherine J. Wu is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and she's joining us now. Hi. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you've done all kinds of really interesting articles, and I, I spent part of the morning reading all of them. But one of the reasons we're having <laughs> you on is is uh, something you wrote back in October, uh, but something that still obtains. Notwithstanding the fact that the director of the CDC finally said something <laughs> to, uh, about masks within the last day or two, uh, maybe you should be wearing masks a, a little bit more. Uh, but you did a piece about how it's getting awkward to wear a mask, and maybe a good place to start would be uh, your cousin and his wife. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been clear to everyone over this past really year and a half that mask wearing has really plummeted. Uh, I am pretty much the only person wearing a mask in any public place I go into, except maybe my spouse, if he happens to be there with me. And, you know, my, my cousin's abruptly noticed this as well. They were on a plane quite recently and they were just really struck. They hadn't been on a plane since this past July, you know, three months prior to the trip they just took. And it was a stark difference. Uh, that first plane they got on, 80% of people were wearing masks. And the second one they got on in October, it was pretty much no one. And it just hit them really hard. They were the odd people out in this immense plane packed full of people. Yeah, and it feels as though, if it makes you feel any better, I, I wear a mask if I'm alone with a ventriloquist dummy, you know? I mean, I wear a mask <laughs> under all possible circumstances, and I have a large collection of different brands and models of N95s and KN95s. But there is something, it's not just awkward, there's something uncool about it, right? There's a way in which you're the nervous Nelly uh, in, uh, in an environment where everybody else is, is more chill than you are. Is that, does that seem somewhat accurate? Yeah, I think unfortunately a lot of people are starting to experience this. You know, I certainly don't think it's universal and I certainly wouldn't want to imply that everyone who is not wearing a mask is out to jeer at people who are still in masks. But I've certainly been hearing from a lot of people that they're either getting this message kind of implicitly just because they feel 
really weird being the only masked person in a room and they're kind of getting looks or they're getting outright comments like, why are you still wearing that? Or, you know, you don't have to do that anymore. Or even, you know, something worse than that. Uh, I think, you know, it's very easy for people to stick out. But this in particular, because it's so tied to some of the strictest uh, precautions we took during the pandemic, has this stigma that's acquired. And I don't see it going away anytime soon. Yeah. Twitter is full of snappy comebacks that you can make uh, to people who uh, cost you at Costco and ask why you're wearing a, ma- wearing a mask. I mean, one of them is, well, I actually have COVID and monkeypox right now, so I'm just trying to protect <laughs> you. Um, but but yeah, I mean, and it, it just it seems as though this devolves somehow from the kinds of leadership issues that we've been talking about on, on this show today that, that ultimately, well, we might as well mention the ultimate leader of this country. That would be President Biden. This is uh, him uh, at the Detroit Auto Show featured on 60 Minutes back in September. Kat, this is C1. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, It's But the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. So if you notice, nobody's wearing masks. Uh, And my understanding is that his team didn't really know that he was going to say something like that, that he was a little bit off script there. But Catherine, that's not helpful. Yeah, that off the cuff remark, I think certainly did generate a lot of backlash. And, you know, there are a couple issues that I can see with it, you know, certainly equating the end of the pandemic with people not adopting a specific mitigation. You know, if we notice the virus still is very much all around us, it doesn't particularly care if we are wearing masks in terms of it, you know, wanting to spread from an evolutionary sense, but more people wearing masks would certainly slow it down. Uh, And also, I think it's, it's a little unfortunate, you know, there have been a lot of people in this country who have sort of built the end of mask wearing as a sort of reward or, you know, once we stop doing this, this is our, you know, great prize at the end of the pandemic, do X, Y, and Z, and then you can finally take off your mask. It builds that as like some destination that we're all trying to reach. And it also sort of subtly builds masks as some unwanted thing, a burden, something that most people can't wait to take off. And maybe that is true of some people, but I certainly don't mind doing it. And I think it discourages people who might be on the fence or who are susceptible to this idea that, oh, God, well, no one else is doing it. So why should I? So parents sending a kid to school in a mask, too, are finding out that they're sending their kid to school in a mask to be the weird kid in the class with a mask on. Oh, yeah, I was really disappointed to hear from, you know, a couple kids, actually, um, you know, my, my cousin's daughter included that they are in the minority of kids wearing masks at school. And most of the time, it's fine. Uh, there are kids who are not giving them any trouble, but they're, you know, kids can be kind of cruel, especially in they're in if they're in middle or high school. Peer pressure is obviously a thing and masks are so visible that these kids end up, unfortunately, sticking out like a sore thumb and other kids feel compelled to comment on that. I guess to them, it's a reminder that things may not be actually back to normal. And it's not necessarily a reality that most people want to hear about. So, Catherine, since we're talking about kids, I want to segue to something else you've written about. And I was going to ask Eric Topol about it, and I never got around to it, too. But um, in that, sometimes the term we're hearing is something like immune debt or something like this, this idea that if, in fact, flu is back, 
like a just Thor's hammer of flu right now. And RSV is uh, hitting kids in a way that we haven't seen for a really long time, that maybe it has something to do with the restrictions that were placed on kids for a while, uh, that they that there's this kind of notion that as long as you're in the fight against diseases, you're being exposed to antigens and pathogens all the time, that you're going to develop immunities and that these kids don't have them uh, because of everything that was done to keep them from getting COVID. I, I don't know. I know that you looked at this. Did you sort of come out of this with an understanding of whether or not that's a realistic way to look at things? So this is a very complicated discussion, as you can imagine. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of misinformation has crept into it. Uh, I prefer not to use the term immunity debt because I think it has acquired all sorts of meanings. And I am never quite sure what someone means when someone brings it up. So what I will say is this. I think it is quite clear that the mitigations we took during the pandemic to stop the transmission of COVID also happened to really tamp down the transmission of viruses like flu and RSV. I mean, we basically saw no flu that first full pandemic winter. RSV also cratered. And now that we have done away with so many of those mitigations, masks among them, it's very easy for those viruses to come back. And a lot of kids are getting sick because they didn't rack up exposures in the meantime that might have otherwise given them immunity that would have made subsequent infections easier. So I don't like to see it as, as you know, debt because it's not like, oh, they should have gotten those infections or like mitigations were wrong. The point is not to blame mitigations, but sort of reckon with this idea what happens when we have a mass lifting of mitigations and there are still all of these viruses around. What can we do in place of those measures? Or should we bring some of those measures back when these viruses start to boom as they are right now? What I do want to say is, you know, there has not been evidence that, you know, there has been a mass like erosion of immunity. Uh, No one is saying that, you know, they wish kids had spent all those years getting pummeled by those viruses at the same time as COVID. But again, it's this idea that immunity does make an impact when it builds up. And when we miss out on exposures, there is going to be a difference the next time you fall ill. Uh, Adults are experiencing this too. You know, some, some of my friends have recently gotten sick and it's a worse case of the flu than they've had in a while. And it may just be because they haven't had the exposures they normally would have gotten over those pandemic years when it was at its worst. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Catherine J. Wu, you are doing terrific work uh, at The Atlantic covering this story. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks to all of you who are listening today. Be careful. Maybe be a little bit more careful even than you have been lately. S to the K, put the mask on your face just to make the next day. Runners be beefing, cops be beefing, brothers be scheming, and should be teaming. Jokers be smoking, and staying broken. This should be teasing, and money squeezing. This gonna be creeping, baby mothers be weeping. I walk the street and camouflage my identity. My posse in the Haiti wear the mask. My crew in Jamaica wear the mask. I pick up kids bumping Fuji La wear the mask. Yeah, everybody wear the mask, but how long will it last? Said-